Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, poisoning, suicidal ideation, and capital punishment that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. They say that when a man is backed into a corner, he reveals who he truly is. And history is filled with people who, back to the wall with everything to lose, committed acts of great bravery or nobility. People who sacrificed themselves to save others, who looked death in the face and refused to blink. That was not the case for Morris Bulber. The self-proclaimed doctor seemed like a boon for the people of Philadelphia peddling magical cures. But his ability to mystify and swindle was on the level of cult leaders. In truth, he used his skills to make money and take lives. And when he was backed into a corner, Morris Bulber sold out everyone who ever believed in him. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to give Alistair some medical insight into our final installment of the case of Morris Bulber, who was intent on proving that crime did pay until these intentions proved too costly to continue. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Morris Bulber, a con man with a dubious medical background and a penchant for what he called faith healing. Dr. Bulber preyed on Philadelphia's superstitious Italian immigrant community through the 1930s, providing fake cures. Then, together with a pair of con man cousins, Bulber masterminded a murder-for-hire poison ring that, by some estimates, killed more than 50 people. In the last episode, we covered Morris Bulber's early life and how he partnered with cousins Paul and Herman Petrillo to start an insurance scam, prescribing lethal potions to Italian-American housewives. Today, we'll look at how Bulber's poison ring was uncovered and follow the media frenzy and courtroom circus that ended in 70 exhumed bodies 23 convictions, 15 life sentences, and two tickets to the electric chair. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. 
Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Morris Bulber opened the door to Millie Jacobe's basement bracing himself against the darkness below. It was the spring of 1933, and Morris's criminal associate, Paul Petrillo, had called him to Millie's house. Paul had started an affair with Millie some months prior and convinced her that her husband, Antonio's only remaining value, was in his life insurance benefit. With a few doses of Bulba's prescribed magical healing powder, which was really poison, the Philadelphia arsenic ring netted around $1,000 in insurance payouts. But in the weeks since Antonio Jacobe's death, Millie reported a voice groaning below her floorboards. It sounded just like Antonio had when his belly was full of arsenic. Like most of Philadelphia arsenic ring's victims, Millie was highly superstitious, so she believed the ghost of her murdered husband was now haunting her basement. Terrified, she hadn't slept in days. So once again, she hired the faith healer, so-called Rabbi Morris Bulber. Bulber arrived at her house around midnight, armed with a candle. He led the way to the basement. Millie cowered behind Bulba as they descended the stairs. The candlelight was weak, but there was one thing Bulba couldn't deny. There was something down there. Bulba followed the hollow, croaking noise deeper into the basement. Millie gripped his shoulder tighter and tighter until she couldn't take it anymore. Screaming, she fled back up the stairs. Now alone, Bulba knelt on the dirt floor and held out his candle. The glow outlined a small, lumpy silhouette. The flame reflected in two black, beady eyes. It was a frog. Exactly what Bulba expected, since he himself had placed the croaking frog in the basement. Bulba squashed the poor animal with his shoe. Then he reported to Millie that the ghost had been vanquished. Bulba was but a showman after all. With Antonio Jacobe's apparent death and subsequent spirit cleansing, word of Bulba and Petrillo's otherworldly services spread like wildfire. 
Across Philadelphia, housewives gossiped about the rabbi's love potions. Over the next four years, the arsenic ring claimed the lives and insurance checks of 10 victims. Bulba and Paul mostly used a mix of arsenic and antimony, but when potions ran low, they'd ask Herman Petrillo to run someone over with his shiny green Plymouth. As their clientele expanded, the arsenic ring gained new members, including Karina Favato, a supposed witch. Paul Petrillo also developed a loose network of doctors, insurance agents, and undertakers ready to fudge the reports on any given victim. As the behind-the-scenes potions man, Bulba was in a fortuitous position. He rarely put himself at risk the way Paul and Herman did. In fact, Bulba was rarely present during the poisonings. He simply prescribed the deadly potions. The involvement of the wives, known as the arsenic widows, varied from job to job. Some were aware the powder Bulba prescribed was poison, Others were told it was a strong love potion that was potentially fatal, the risk of reigniting a dead marriage. Regardless, none of the widows went to the police after their husbands died for fear of being implicated. By 1938, Bulba's arsenic ring had collected an estimated $100,000 in insurance payouts. Morris Bulba, nearly 50 now, began to dress as extravagantly as the Petrillo brothers, sauntering around the Pashunk neighborhood in a blue chinchilla coat and white scarf. The arsenic ring was living large. But like many criminals on a lucky streak, they got sloppy. As the most enthusiastic criminal in the ring, Herman Petrillo had a number of henchmen in his orbit. One of them, was named Ferdinando Alfonsi. In the late 1920s, Alfonsi owned a prosperous cement business, but it fell apart during the Depression. By the fall of 1938, Alfonsi mostly worked as Herman's lackey in counterfeiting operations. Herman visited Alfonsi's house regularly, and that's how he first met Alfonsi's wife, Stella. Stella Alfonsi was 29 years old, she was beautiful, but deeply unhappy. She resented her marriage to Fernando, which was arranged when she was only 17, and she neglected her children. All in all, she was exactly the kind of unscrupulous woman who made the Petrillo men weak in the knees. Herman fell for her immediately. They began a secret affair, but eventually the question arose, what to do about her husband. Normally, Herman usually had no problem killing a man to take what he wanted, but this was complicated. He and Fernando Alfonsi were friends. Herman compromised by taking out a $2,000 insurance policy on Alfonsi, then searching for someone else to kill him. This led him to George Meyer. In 1938, George Meyer had fallen on hard times. He was an ex-felon and looking to start a new life. 
Maya needed a loan to start a business, so a mutual friend introduced him to Herman Petrillo. Maya hopped into Herman's car to talk business. He was hoping to sell Herman a stolen Hoover vacuum, but Herman had something else in mind. He offered Maya $500 to kill Ferdinando Alfonsi. Herman led Maya to the trunk of his car and produced a lead pipe. Herman explained that it needed to look like an accident, so Maya should club Alfonsi with the pipe, then throw him down a flight of stairs. Maya was nervous. The pipe could leave a telltale dent in Alfonsi's head. He didn't agree just yet. When Herman brought the concern to his associates, they concocted an alternative. They suggested sewing a bag and filling it with sand. They claimed the sandbag wouldn't leave a mark and that the wound would look like a cerebral hemorrhage during an autopsy. A cerebral hemorrhage is an uncontrolled bleed in the brain caused by an injury or a ruptured blood vessel. This can be fatal if left untreated as the pooling blood around the brain creates pressure, depriving it of oxygen and ultimately causing hypoxemia-induced brain death. Getting hit in the head with a sandbag could cause one of these bleeds, depending on how much force was used and which part of the skull was struck. The Tyrian regions, for example, which are bone junctions on the sides of the skull near the temples, are particularly vulnerable because of how thin the bones are in these areas and because there are large cerebral arteries running under them, known as the middle meningeal arteries. Compared to a pipe, a sandbag would probably be more difficult to wield and cause severe damage. However, these guys were correct in assuming it could obscure the cause of death. Despite Bulba's solution, Maya still wasn't thrilled at the idea of killing a man. He strung Herman along for weeks, hoping to get an advance. Eventually, Herman offered Maya an additional $2,500 in counterfeit bills to finish the job. The prospect excited Maya, but not because he was eager to commit crimes again. George Maya's fresh start wasn't with the Bulba Petrillo arsenic murdering, it was with the US government, as an informant. And now, he was armed with the dirt to turn in Herman Petrillo. Coming up, law enforcement uncovers the first evidence of Morris Bulber's arsenic ring. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case. 
ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. Throughout the summer of 1938, Herman Petrillo had been pestering George Meyer to kill his friend Ferdinando Alfonsi. He wanted Alfonsi out of the picture so he could steal his wife, Stella. But Herman had offered to pay Meyer in counterfeit money. And Meyer, an ex-con looking to stay on the right side of the law, took that information to the authorities in Philadelphia. Meyer told officers about Herman's offer to pay him $2,500 in counterfeit cash to kill a man. And the police laughed him out of the building. But George Meyer did not give up. He took his intel to the director of the Secret Service branch in Philadelphia. The director was skeptical, but when he discovered Herman Petrillo was already wanted for counterfeiting, the director took a chance and assigned an agent to the case. The Secret Service agent began working undercover with George Meyer in early August 1938. Meyer told Herman that his new friend was a professional assassin interested in fulfilling the contract on Alfonsi. Herman was thrilled to have a professional on the job, and the three men started meeting multiple times a week. Their conversations were blunt. They debated different ways to kill Alfonsi. Should they drown him? Run him over? Or bludgeon him with Bulba's trusty sandbag? But despite all the murder plotting, the agent's primary duty was to solicit counterfeit money. And that was one arena where Herman Petrillo continually fell short. By the end of August, all Meyer and the agent had seen of the counterfeit cash was a single bill. They pressured Herman to get more, but before Herman delivered, the undercover duo learned something troubling. Ferdinando Alfonsi had fallen deathly ill. Apparently, the arsenic ring had restocked their poison. Meyer and the agent tracked down Herman, who told them their services were no longer needed. He even bragged that Alfonsi, quote, must have nine lives because we gave him enough arsenic to kill six men. A damning confession the Secret Service agent handed over their evidence to the Philadelphia police, who arrested Herman and Stella for attempted murder. After the arrest, fear rippled through the arsenic ring, and Morris Bulber went on the run. He moved back to Brooklyn, where he remained in hiding 
waiting for the other shoe to drop. Back in Philadelphia, police didn't have enough evidence to hold Herman and Stella. That was until October 27th, when Ferdinando Alfonsi died at the National Stomach Hospital in Philadelphia. Unlike poor Luigi from our last episode, Ferdinando Alfonsi died surrounded by specialists who could provide a more accurate diagnosis. Arsenic is a poison that can inflict intense damage in the stomach if ingested, and besides vomiting, bloody diarrhea, and severe abdominal pain, it can cause very noticeable edema throughout the gastrointestinal system. The fluid accumulation can also lead to swelling of the intestines, and arsenic may even cause smooth intestinal muscles to contort in rare cases, as the toxin interferes with muscle relaxation by inhibiting the production of ATP molecules. At the National Stomach Hospital, doctors would have likely been suspicious of these physical signs and symptoms, given their sudden onset and Luigi's apparent lack of infection. It's hard to say for sure if attending doctors would infer foul play because we don't know what Luigi's exact presentation was. However, it must have been suspicious enough, Alistair, because it did in fact lead to an autopsy. That autopsy revealed a large amount of arsenic in Alfonsi's system. Herman and Stella were arrested again. This time, their charge increased to first-degree murder. The investigation might have stopped at this death, if not for one extreme coincidence. When a local newspaper published a story on the Alfonsi murder, an insurance investigator noticed Herman Petrillo's photo. He recognized Herman. They'd met previously at the home of self-styled witch Karina Favato after her stepson, Philip Ingrao, had died. The investigator already thought the Ingrao case was strange. Philip was young and healthy before he suddenly fell ill. Not to mention, the 17-year-old was heavily insured. His death earned Favato around $13,000. Suspecting Herman Petrillo might be involved in two mysterious deaths, the insurance investigator called a friend on the Philadelphia Homicide Squad. This detective badgered the DA's office to exhume Ingrao's body to test it for arsenic. They initially refused, but as Herman Petrillo's name continued to pop up on suspicious insurance policies, the district attorney finally agreed. They unearthed Ingrao's corpse and, sure enough, discovered arsenic. The murder ring favored arsenic because of its lack of taste and smell, along with its ability to kill with a relatively small dose. One thing they didn't consider, though, is that the traces of the poison can remain in a person's body for quite a long time. Both inorganic and organic arsenic leave the body through urination, and inorganic arsenic, like the poison used by this group of killers, can actually take months to fully evacuate from the system. It can also stay in hair and nails for long periods of time after death and can even be traced by coroners through blood and bone examination. The long life of this toxic substance is fortunately something that works against people who use it to kill. 
Its staying power allows investigators to test for it, even in victims who died long ago. With the insurance investigator's statement and the arsenic found in Ingrao's system, police arrested his stepmother, Karina Favato, on suspicion of murder. After more digging, law enforcement uncovered two similar deaths tied to Favato, including Philip's father. Once exhumed, both bodies tested for arsenic. What began as a counterfeiting investigation was rapidly expanding into a vast conspiracy. Self-proclaimed healers and witches could be hiding dozens more murders. Philadelphia's district attorney assigned his direct subordinate, Assistant DA Vincent McDevitt, to oversee the case. In the fall of 1938, Vincent McDevitt was looking to establish his career. Bringing down a murder-for-hire ring felt like his big break, if he could crack it. McDevitt knew he needed to find the ring's center, someone to pin the whole thing on. Luckily, a lead was rocketing straight towards him. In early 1939, Assistant DA Vincent McDevitt's team received an intriguing phone call from Sing Sing Prison in New York. The caller was 28-year-old Johnny Kakopado. He was serving a 30-year sentence after he was convicted of fatally shooting his girlfriend. But Johnny insisted he was innocent. The detectives rolled their eyes. Nearly every convict in Sing Sing claimed innocence but they changed their tune when Johnny told them who he believed committed the crime. According to Johnny, his own uncle framed him for murder after Johnny refused to join the ranks of the man's secret Philadelphia witchcraft murdering. His uncle's name was Paul Petrillo. In February 1939, Assistant DA Vincent McDevitt arrested Paul Petrillo based on his nephew's tip. By this time, McDevitt's team had compiled a long list of suspects, mostly widows, along with insurance agents, physicians, pharmacists, undertakers, and a few common crooks. McDevitt had identified three potential masterminds, the two Petrillo cousins and the infamous witch, Karina Favato. But something told McDevitt that he still didn't have his man. Herman Petrillo seemed like too much of a thug to mastermind anything, and Favato joined late in the scheme. Even Paul Petrillo, the most likely option, didn't seem to have the skills or confidence to organize a scheme like this. There was that mysterious magical healer, Morris Bulber, whom McDevitt had seen mentioned a few times but no one could find him, and most of McDevitt's suspects still weren't talking. Faced with intense media scrutiny, McDevitt turned his focus toward building airtight legal cases against the suspects he did have. He researched every poison case tried and lost in the state over the last three decades and learned that the main reason the prosecution failed was contaminated evidence. So the assistant DA took extraordinary measures to avoid repeating those mistakes. 
he established a rigorous chain custody for each exhumed body, enforced strict sterilization protocols for autopsies, and tested everything for arsenic, including gravesite soil, casket linings, victims' clothing, and even, in one case, the wallpaper from the room where the victim died. McDevitt's protocols allowed them to establish in court that any arsenic in the body had to be the result of poisoning. This was an impressive effort for the time. While modern-day forensic investigators take rigorous steps to ensure their evidence isn't cross-contaminated, this wasn't the norm in the 1930s, and McDevitt's team was definitely demonstrating an advanced understanding here. Their basic approach did line up with modern forensic standards in that sterilization was highly regarded, and they went to great lengths to test as much surrounding material as possible. This wasn't just smart from a medical perspective, it was also clever from a legal standpoint. McDevitt could hopefully use his team's meticulous findings to establish causes of death, all while creating an impressive narrative for a jury. McDevitt's team dug up body after body. Their rigorous testing provided a forensic backbone to his case. But the lab work took time. A month passed before McDevitt was ready to take suspects to trial. First up was spaghetti salesman turned conman Herman Petrillo. On March 13, 1939, he was formally accused of murdering Ferdinando Alfonsi. As the trial began, the city buzzed with gossip about the Philadelphia arsenic ring. City Hall was packed with reporters and curious onlookers. Inside the courtroom, Herman Petrillo sat in the defendant's chair, appearing cool and confident. He'd weaseled his way out of a conviction in an arson trial a few years prior, and he was certain he could do it again. So he kicked his feet up and waited for the jury to declare him innocent. But assistant DA McDevitt quickly served Herman a reality check. In addition to the hard evidence of arsenic in Ferdinando Alfonsi's system, there was a laundry list of witnesses. First, the insurance agent who testified that Herman strong-armed the reluctant Alfonsi to take out the biggest life insurance policy he could get without a medical exam. Then, George Meyer and the undercover agent who told the court that Herman brainstormed ways to kill Alfonsi all summer until he admitted to poisoning the man. Finally, Two pharmacists claimed that Herman tried to buy live typhoid germs off them, a request they refused. Of all the ways to kill someone, infecting them with a deadly disease outside of a controlled setting might be the riskiest. Typhoid fever comes from the Salmonella typhi bacterium, and it's ultimately spread through food, drink, or water contaminated with infected fecal matter. Now there's a nice image for you, Alistair. If someone with typhoid fever doesn't get proper antibiotic treatment, there's a risk that they could die from severe intestinal bleeding or even renal failure, as this illness ruthlessly inflames and damages the kidney's filtration system. 
It would have been possible for Herman to carry out this plan without getting sick, but it was certainly risky. Typhoid fever is highly contagious, and at the end of the day, I'd say that Herman Petrillo was lucky his search for these deadly germs didn't work out. Herman was much less lucky in court. McDevitt quickly moved to paint him as a cold-blooded killer. He called more witnesses to the stand. Alfonsi's caretakers from the National Stomach Hospital. The healthcare workers went into great detail about Alfonsi's final days. Their description was so gruesome that a member of the jury fainted and had to be replaced mid-trial. After nine days of increasingly incriminating evidence and testimony, the jury forewoman stood up. She was a 42-year-old housewife who could have easily been one of the ring's customers. She pronounced Herman Petrillo guilty of first-degree murder with a recommendation of death by electric chair. Outraged at what he believed was an unfair trial, Herman Petrillo lunged at the forewoman, yelling and cursing at her. Two officers dragged Herman Petrillo away, and Herman's own lawyer apologized to the judge. The lawyer said, quote, I wouldn't have defended this man if I had known he was such scum. Herman Petrillo's death sentence hit the arsenic ring like a tidal wave. McDevitt was out for blood, and anyone who anticipated an easy acquittal might find themselves facing the electric chair. The ring's resolve began to crumble. Four days into her own trial, self-proclaimed witch Karina Favato broke down, confessing to all three of the murders she was on trial for. Favato promised to work with police and soon turned over enough evidence to arrest nearly a dozen accomplices. From his hideout in Brooklyn, Morris Bulber felt the turn of the tide. On April 26th, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that police were searching for a middle-aged healer known as the rabbi. Backed into a corner, Bulba decided once again to rely on his superpower, convincing people to believe him. He packed his bags and hopped a train to Philadelphia. Coming up, the rabbi puts his faith to the test. Now, back to the story. On May 1st, 1939, Morris Bulber walked into the DA's office unannounced, wearing a Chesterfield coat and gray bowler hat. He asked to speak to Vincent McDevitt, claiming he had valuable information about the Philadelphia arsenic murdering. Vincent McDevitt quickly surmised that Morris Bulber was a showman and he'd get the most valuable information by flattering this self-proclaimed doctor and rabbi's ego. So McDevitt rented a suite of fancy rooms at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. He'd question Bulba there. At the hotel, they treated Bulba to expensive dinners, cigars and champagne. And, like clockwork, Bulba spoke to detectives non-stop for two days. He laid out all the dirty details of the ring's operation. 
It took two stenographers to record all of it, amassing dozens of pages. According to Bulba, he was an unwitting accomplice who turned himself over to the police out of a sense of duty to his community. In two days, he only confessed to one murder out of dozens. But it was enough for McDevitt to take Bulba into custody. Still, the plush treatment didn't end. McDevitt got Bulba his own personal cell with conjugal visits from his wife. And they cut a deal. Bulba would testify against the other members of the ring in court. The assistant DA's plan hit a snag when a psychologist who evaluated Bulba warned him not to put Bulba on the stand, claiming the man would thrive in the spotlight and topple over the dignity of the court. But McDevitt would take his chances anyway. Over the next few months, McDevitt led Morris Bulba on a press tour to rehabilitate his image. He took care to distinguish himself as a faith healer, claiming that he used the power of belief to treat more than 20,000 people in Philadelphia alone. He did a six-part series with the Philadelphia Inquirer detailing his personal history as well as his encounters with the unscrupulous Petrillo cousins. Bulba was especially brutal toward Paul Petrillo, painting him as a fool and a conman who didn't share his skill for healing. By the time Paul Petrillo's trial began in September 1939, Bulba had set the stage for drama. Paul Petrillo's trial started just as poorly as Herman's. He didn't even make it to his chair before a victim's daughter jumped at him across the aisle, screaming, you killed my father. And she wasn't the only person who had it out for Paul. McDevitt had packed the jury with death penalty enthusiasts and called over a hundred witnesses. Each spoke poison about Paul Petrillo, but none with more gusto than Morris Bulba. Bulba's psychologist was right. He thrived in the spotlight. He showboated at every chance and was condescending toward the defense, treating Paul Petrillo's lawyer like a fool who couldn't understand basic facts of the case. Jury members who had begun to lose interest found themselves invigorated by Bulba's fiery testimony. Bulba, in turn, played them like a fiddle, eliciting sympathy, anger, and even laughter from his captive audience. At one point, Bulba threw the room into pandemonium as he attempted to put the evil eye on Petrillo. He stared at him, unflinching from behind his drooping eyelid. And though not everyone believed in his evil eye, by the end of his testimony, Bulba had evidently succeeded in linking Petrillo with the murders. Two weeks into his trial, the reality began to weigh on Paul Petrillo. On September 28, 1939, he returned from his lunch break and changed his plea to guilty. In the end, he received the same fate as his cousin, the death sentence. For 
the next two years, Philadelphia was enraptured with a never-ending series of trials, plea bargains, and appeals. Dozens of widows were tried for plotting their husbands' deaths or even poisoning them. Conviction after conviction rained down, even for women who likely had no idea that Bulba's potions were fatal. When the dust finally settled, Assistant DA McDevitt had accomplished his goal of making a name for himself and bringing law and order back to Philadelphia. Both Millie Jacobe, the woman who thought her murdered husband was haunting her, and Karina Favato, the self-proclaimed witch of Philadelphia, were sentenced to life in prison. Meanwhile, Stella Alfonsi, Ferdinando's beautiful, unhappy wife, attended her trial in an alluring black dress and had her lawyer stack the jury with impressionable men who couldn't look past her beauty. It worked like a charm, and Stella was acquitted of all charges. By the end, it seemed that the only members who didn't manage to reduce their sentences were Paul and Herman Petrillo. On March 31, 1949, Paul Petrillo was executed by electric chair. He died pleading for mercy to the sound of a clergyman praying nearby. Paul's cousin Herman followed on October 20th of the same year. Herman died insisting that Morris Bulber was the real mastermind of the arsenic ring. Morris Bulber watched all this happen from his jail cell. As he awaited his own sentencing hearing, Bulber boasted to anyone who would listen that he would never die in the electric chair. But he didn't know this for sure until January 7th, 1942. On that chilly day, Bulba stood in Philadelphia's Quarter Sessions Court as the judge announced his verdict. Life in prison. Morris Bulba smiled. His final manifestation worked. He'd escaped the electric chair. The story of the Philadelphia arsenic murder ring is truly a bizarre one. Likely over 50 murders, and that's not even counting the frog. It almost seems more like a movie than a true story, and the cast of characters is equally intriguing. Without question, in all his evil eccentricity, Morris Bulber is a strangely fascinating figure. It's hard to imagine how someone could be such a charming manipulator, and it makes you wonder what he'd be able to get away with in this day and age. He clearly had an uncanny ability to capitalize on his own lies and fabricated image, and this had to have been a much easier game for criminals to play back then. They say, in times of economic uncertainty, con men are able to thrive, and that was undoubtedly the case in 1930s Philadelphia. Bulba filed for parole three times, pledging that if he was released, he'd move to Israel and teach Hebrew to young boys. He even began writing a book about himself titled The Book of Moses. But Bulba's hopes of parole proved in vain. After 15 years behind bars, 
he died in prison on February 15, 1954. His third parole petition was still pending. We'll never know what more he could have gotten followers to believe. And perhaps that's for the best. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Morris Bulber, among the many sources we used, we found Poison Widows, a true story of witchcraft, arsenic, and murder by George Cooper, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.